well, it was a few days before Christmas, that my family was asked to pray for Becca's nephew, Caleb. Caleb had spina bifida, and because he does not have any feeling in the lower part of his body, uh, he can't feel pain. And Caleb many times has gotten kidney stones and only discovered that because he gets a really high fever and gets really sick, needs to go to the hospital, and then they need to uh, help him. And so we got the call to pray for Caleb, and we've prayed for him many times before. We've prayed for him in this church before. This was pretty ordinary. But this time was different than previous hospitalizations. His temperature kept rising and they were unable to uh, reduce it. And in fact, it got up to 107 and they had to put him on a ventilator and they packed him in ice. And that was all in an attempt to uh, alleviate this. And the danger is that after several hours of that high a temperature, you have irreversible brain damage. So there were lots of concerns, and we were praying a lot for him. And on this one particular evening after the nurse um, and the doctors had been checking him, they did a test with a flashlight in his eyes, and his pupils did not respond, which often reflects some damage to the brain. And um, that night they ended up, Caleb ended up passing away, 21 years old. It's very sad. And uh, his family wanted to have a funeral sooner than later. And so uh, a couple days after Christmas, my family flew to Syracuse. Uh, and it was a very long day. We left Fillmore at 8 a.m. And we arrived around midnight. And then 1 a.m. or so, we went to bed. And at 3 a.m., we got the news that my mother had passed away. And uh, she lived here in Fillmore at the Country Club, and the, one of the staff members was making their rounds and checking on everyone, and around 10, 20 or so, they went and checked on her, and she was unresponsive. And as many of you know, my mom was deteriorating very quickly, rap um, mentally and physically, last couple of years very rapidly and so this was obviously devastating news and I don't know how much I slept that night Caleb's funeral graveside service was in the morning and I just remember after maybe getting two hours of sleep <laughs> we go to this graveside service and the weather just seemed so appropriate for this day it was cold and it was gray and it was drizzly, and it just seemed like something out of a Hollywood movie, you know, people at the graveside and with the umbrellas and everything. And, and it just all seemed so hopeless, you know. People are crying. We're all looking at this casket that's going to be lowered into the ground, and it's not going to be raised up again. And... Um, It was just a sad scene. <laughs> I'm thinking about Caleb. I'm thinking about my mom. I'm thinking about death. 
and thinking about how this same fate awaits all of us. I mean, we want to live. We have a natural desire to live. Even people who want to take their own life, it's not because they want to die, it's because they want to stop whatever suffering they're experiencing. It's not because they don't want to live. They want to live. They just want to stop their depression or their anxiety or their whatever. We want to live. We have a desire to live. Life is full of joy and laughter and friendship and passion and pleasure and rest and happiness. And all these things are fleeting. And yes, they come and go. And life is full of hardship. But there is a sense of the joy of living, the, the, the desire to experience life. And yet we know as time marches forward, our bodies begin to deteriorate, everything starts to break down, and no one without exception can stop that process. And if you don't expire naturally, death will come some other tragic way for you. Maybe an accident, maybe a, a disease, maybe you'll have a heart attack or a stroke, maybe you will die at the hands of another. You know, there's no way to look at this thing where there's some kind of happy ending. Regardless of how fruitful and pleasurable your life might be, death ensures that there are no happy endings. Everyone's final chapter is essentially the same. It ends in death. Every delight and desire and experience and pursuit, all of it in an instant, gone, taken from you. All that you have worked for, all that you have saved for, all that you have aspired to, gone in a moment. David, the psalmist, recognized this when he wrote in Psalm 103, he says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. So David points us to something you see in nature and he wants you to consider this. Consider a flower that sprouts up out of the ground. There's so much beauty and so much hope and so much life and it has this youthful strength as it stretches up toward the sun. And it's bursting with fragrance and color. And what happens after a very short time? It is withered and it is gone. He wants you to think about that. This is the great tragedy of life. All that displays beauty and glory and strength and youth will be here today and it will be gone tomorrow. This is true of you. This is true of me. And this is the great tragedy of our existence. You can read about death in all of history. Find the greatest men and women who ever walked this earth and you will find that just like the flower of the field, they withered and they are gone. World leaders and religious leaders alike. Musicians and politicians. Physicians and philosophers. 
whether you are a philanthropist or whether you are a tyrant. Those who once ruled the world and those whose ideas influenced civilizations, Pharaoh, Cyrus, Darius, and Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, Nero, Constantine, Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle, Caesar, Herod, Caiaphas, and Pontius Pilate, Nietzsche, Darwin, and Immanuel Kant, Henry VIII, Catherine the Great, Joan of Arc, Buddha, Krishna, and Mohammed, Gandhi, and Martin Luther King, Elvis, Marilyn Monroe, and John Lennon, from the King of Persia to the King of Pop, given enough time, all have the same fate. They will all wither like the flower of the field and be gone. And given enough time, this is your story and this is mine. Another Psalm 146, verse 3 and 4, it says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. No matter what level of greatness a person might attain in this life, there is no salvation in him. His days are numbered, and his plans will evaporate with him. James 4.14, he says, this is to Christians, You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little, little time and then vanishes. How many have made plans for the future only to have them interrupted by death? How many have ruled nations only to wind up in a pine box buried beneath the earth? About a decade ago, I found a news article that I thought was fascinating. They discovered an ancient cemetery in Leicester, England which included the tomb of King Richard III, who was the last English king to die in battle. And what was interesting about it is they found him underneath a parking lot in that city. Now imagine this. The man who ruled the Western world at the time, who led the English armies into battle, Centuries later, he's buried 10 feet beneath a Toyota Corolla with a leaky oil pan. I mean, how's that for a picture? All of us perish, both great and small. Those whose names live on in infamy and those who succumb to death in infancy. And we know death is coming, although we live like it's not. Isn't it curious, when you hear of someone's death, it's almost like we're shocked that death came for that person too. 
Now, sometimes we know people are very sick and, and we know that they're going to die. But it's like, how often do you hear about a movie star or a musician or someone? Oh, did you hear so-and-so died? Oh, like we're shocked that death came for them too. We don't like to think about death. It doesn't bring us joy to think about death. But do you ever think about what's going to happen to your possessions after you die? When you die, all of your possessions will most likely be distributed to family members. And sometimes, tragically, those family members fight over what they received versus what other siblings received. And those things that they're fighting over and going to war with their siblings over is also going to be distributed to other people someday. Or it's going to wind up at a garage sale. Or at Goodwill. Or it's going to wind up under tons of trash at the dump. We work, we strive, we save, we plan, we prosper, we fail, we strive some more, we invest, and we collect, and it's all to be passed on to others someday. Taken from you by death. Death is not a happy ending to your story. It's no wonder that since the beginning of time, man has invented various religions to help him cope with this miserable final chapter. Hope is a part of our survival. We need to hope in something and death seems entirely hopeless. So throughout the history of the world, people have come up with ideas to give them hope of something that might happen after death so it doesn't seem so hopeless. Some have offered that there's this thing where you sort of get recycled again and there's reincarnation and you die, but it's not the end because you're going to be born a second time in a different body and what kind of body you're going to get is all going to depend on how good you were before. And so these kinds of ideas lead to where you could come back as a cockroach, you could come back as a cow, you could come back as a great leader. Other ideas state that you become a spirit and roam the earth. So you're still around, you just can't see the person, but you can sense that they're there sometimes when you really think about it. Or others postulate that you die and you go to a very happy place and there's lots of clouds and there's music kind of like Kenny G playing in the background and everything's happy and peaceful and you're just content. You're resting in peace. And you find that most every religion in the history of the world has some kind of story. And they have their concept of an afterlife that is a life without pain and death that we have in this world. 
But as many as those who have postulated these ideas, as diverse as some of these ideas have become, all of those who have come up with them have also died. All of those who represent those religions will also die. All of those who have claimed to come from heaven have died. And none have returned with the exception of one. This is a one that the Hebrew Scriptures thousands of years ago foretold who would come and who would do this. He would bring everlasting life. He would solve the problem of man's greatest dilemma, which is death. And he fulfilled hundreds of these ancient Scriptures to make it clear that he was the one that was foretold. These scriptures said he would be born of miraculous means, a virgin, virgin birth. He would be born in a particular place in Bethlehem. He would heal the blind and free those who are oppressed. He would preach about the kingdom of God. He would teach us how to live. His teachings would be a light for the nations. He would have the power to forgive sins, yet he himself would be without sin. He would make us righteous in the eyes of God. He would take our sin upon himself. These scriptures also foretold how this person would die. He would be hated, he would be betrayed, he would endure a criminal's death, even though he was innocent. His hands and his feet would be pierced. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. He would rise again from the dead. He would be the first one who would break the cycle of death that was begun by Adam in the garden. And there was one man who fulfilled all of these promises, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus came to rescue people from sin and death And this was done by becoming a substitute. He stands in our place. He endures the wrath of God in our place. He becomes the righteousness of God in our place. And He does this because there is a barrier between us and God because we break His laws. And death is the greatest evidence that something has gone terribly wrong. Death is to be a reminder to us all that things are not as they ought to be. So Jesus lives a perfect life and He gives Himself in place of sinners so that they are declared righteous before the divine court of heaven. And then to validate His message, to prove that He was the one, He does what no one else could do before Him and that is rises from the dead. Jesus crosses over to the other side and He comes back and He is unique in all of history. How do we know that the Bible is true? How do we know that Jesus really is the Messiah? What gives us such certainty? Well, because dead people die and they do not rise. And Jesus died, and He did rise. 
And he said he was going to rise. And the Old Testament Scripture said he was going to rise. And this great event of the resurrection is the evidence and the proof that there is life beyond the grave. Many world religions, many cultures have theories about what happens after death. Jesus is the only one who could tell us definitively. Now, not everyone believes this, of course. And I used to ask people, excuse me, if someone you loved, let's say you had a grandma who raised you, she was your favorite person in the world, it broke your heart when she died, you've been just never the same ever since, if this same grandma appeared to you and spoke with you, and told you about life on the other side, and described things to you that were entirely wonderful, and you were able to handle her, and you were able to hear her, and you ate a meal with her, would you believe what she was saying was true? And I think every time I asked that question, the response was always the same. Well, of course I would. She would be the proof that these things were true. And I point them then to the resurrection of Jesus. This is what happened with Jesus and his disciples. They saw him publicly tried and humiliated and publicly crucified. And he was buried in a tomb and they all mourned his death. And after three days, he rose again. He appeared to them. He appeared to 500 of the disciples. And you know what their response was? Uh, We knew this was going to happen. We were planning for it. We were expecting it. No. Many of them did not believe it. One in particular, who we know named Thomas, was like, I will not believe that unless... He stands right here and I can put my hand into his side. There's another scene at the end of Matthew when Jesus is going to ascend into heaven and it says that they believed but some doubted. (laughs) Even then. So we were dealing with skeptics in the first century also. There were skeptics then too. They knew that dead people die and don't rise. They had a hard time believing that someone could die and then rise. But they handled him. That's, what, that's how John the Apostle begins his first letter. The one who we heard and touched, we handled him. This is the one we're speaking about. And they were so convinced that Jesus rose from the dead that many of them suffered a horrible, gruesome death because of it. They could have denied Jesus and saved their life, but they said, nope, I've seen him, I talked to him, we ate lunch with him, and if you're going to crucify me, crucify me. Some were burned alive, some were tortured, some were stoned to death, and all they had to do was recant and say, nope, It was a lie. It was a big sham. We did not see him. But they didn't do that. And they didn't do that because Jesus is the key to everlasting life. Jesus defeated death and said, I want to take you with me. 
So he comes back from the dead and he calls men and women and children to turn from sin and to follow him. And they too will defeat death and live forever. He promises that if you join yourself to him by faith, you will be raised again to never ever die. In other words, His resurrection becomes the archetype of all resurrection. Just as Jesus was raised to newness of life in a glorified body, so He too will raise all who are joined to Him by faith in a glorified body. This is the central idea of the Christian hope. Now we've talked about hope before. We know hope doesn't mean hope so... That's not what the Bible means when it says hope. Hope is a certainty. Hope is something that has been promised that we await. And this is the great hope of the Christian so that whatever evils await us, whatever tragedies befall us, regardless of how much suffering there is in this life to endure, we can rest in the fact that death is not the end we can rest in the fact that Jesus is on the other side and we can be with Him forever. In 1 Peter 3, which I read, Peter calls this a living hope. A living hope. It's been known that hope is indispensable to the human condition. Without hope, you begin to die inside. You take away a person's hope and you take away their purpose for living. It can be said that people who commit suicide do so because they don't have hope. I trust many of you have been on the Golden Gate Bridge, very famous up in San Francisco. Also famous for being a spot where a lot of people commit suicide. They've had somewhere around 1,800 people commit suicide off the Golden Gate Bridge. 39 of those people survived. Every every one of their testimony was the same, those who survived. They said the moment they flung themselves over the edge, they had a deep sense of regret. They didn't want to die. They just didn't want to suffer anymore. But they didn't have hope. They felt hopeless. I read a fascinating book on depression years ago about this subject. This was written by a Christian physician and he pointed out some remarkable things about how important hope is to people. To people specifically struggling with depression. And he came to the conclusion that most people are not clinically depressed. What they lack is hope. He cites an article published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, 2002, where researchers did a clinical trial in which they compared the results of depressed people taking three different items. One was St. John's wort, which is a over-the-counter over-the-counter herbal kind of remedy, Zoloft, which is a pharmaceutical, and then a placebo. 
So three groups of people, each are diff- given a different thing, and then the results were that they found that Zoloft was effective in relieving depression in 25% of the patients, while St. John's wort was effective in 24% of the patients. But what was really interesting about the study is they found that the placebo worked with 32% of the patients in overcoming their depression. In his book, he cites another researcher who examined 47 studies of antidepressants conducted or sponsored by the makers of medicine. He found that the result between those taking the real drug and those taking a placebo was indistinguishable. In other words, they were the same. In 82% of those treated, the drugs themselves were not the source of the benefit. The greatest benefit came to those who believed in the drug and gained hope from that belief. In other words, they were told that the drug would help them and they had hope. And that hope made them feel better. Now, my point in sharing that is not to tell you it's okay to believe whatever you want as long as it makes you feel better. I'm not saying, oh, it's good for people to have a false view of God and a false view of heaven as long as it makes them feel better. I'm just pointing out that hope is indispensable to the human condition. People need hope, and the Bible gives us real hope. In Peter's day, Peter's writing to many in the church who are suffering persecution, Christians who are being slaughtered under the emperor Nero, they're being forced from their homes, they're being thrown in prison, they are being publicly executed, and 1 Peter is written to suffering Christians. He wants to persuade them to persevere, and he writes to offer them hope. And if you still have your Bible, look down what he says. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be be revealed in the last time. So notice the hope that Peter offers is tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why should they have hope? Does he try to encourage them that things could get better for them? Does he try to encourage them that maybe the Romans are going to back off on the church and maybe the persecution is going to cease, and maybe the more that the gospel spreads, things are going to get better, and they'll have a more comfortable life. No. He joins their their outlook of life to a hope in the resurrection of Jesus, which is a promise of their resurrection. Because Jesus rose again, 
that is proof that they too will rise again. And that is 10,000 times greater a hope than just hoping that your circumstances are going to get better. He tells them that an age is dawning and God is going to right every wrong and death, that terrible ruler of mankind, is not going to be the awful, tragic end to everyone's story. And writing to Christians who are dying and being threatened with death, what wonderful hope to give them. And interestingly, God does something in death that only God can do. Rather than death being this greatest human tragedy imaginable that everyone is trying to avoid, through resurrection, God makes death the vehicle that will usher His people into eternal joy where they will never die. Death becomes a doorway into everlasting bliss where God's children are going to be with Him to enjoy Him forever in a world with no pain and no suffering and no death. In fact, notice in verse 4, Peter says that they're going to have an inheritance that they will never lose. You're going to lose everything in this life But a day is coming where you're going to have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It will never rust. It will never rot. It will never be stolen. It will never be forfeited. It will never wind up at the Goodwill or at a garage sale or under a heap of trash. How can they be absolutely certain about this? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. Take away the resurrection, and people might still have hope in an afterlife, but all it's going to be is a placebo. Just a placebo. Something to hope in, but it doesn't have any substance. Take away the resurrection and people, Christians, are hopeless. Now some might argue, yes, okay, but even if Christianity is not true and even if Jesus did not rise from the dead, if we die and we're eaten by worms and that's the end of the story, hey, at least we lived a good moral life. At least we improved our lives somewhat. But that is not what the Bible says. In fact, I had Richard read 1 Corinthians 15 to remind you of what Paul says there. He says, if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And then he says this, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul doesn't say, well, you know, hey, if there's no resurrection from the dead, at least you lived a good moral life and you helped your neighbor and you were a good person. doesn't say that at all. 
He says, think about the most pitiable people in the world that you've ever seen, and you are to be pitied more than that. Think about people in India, just some of the poorest people in the world, children filthy and begging on the streets and families who have no, no, nothing. And it's such a pitiful scene. Paul says we, we would be even more pitiful than that if the resurrection was not true and we believed it. Because you lived your life believing a lie. But then he says in verse 20 of that chapter, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Is that your hope this evening? That Christ has been raised from the dead? Someone once said, if Christ is risen... Sorry, if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. But if Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. If He didn't rise, then go ahead and pursue whatever your heart desires. Pursue pleasure. But if He did rise, then pursue God with all of your might. Live and die for Him. Because what you do today for Him will matter a billion, billion years from now. Spend of yourself. Give of yourself. Die to yourself. If Christ rose from the dead. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, and by implication the resurrection, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. I feel like sometimes we treat it as if it is moderately important. Yes, it's important. Yes, it try to get to church when I can. It's moderately important. <laughs> try to read my Bible. What are you hoping in as we find ourselves in a new year? 2024 is here. What are you hoping in? Is what you're hoping in going to matter five years from now? I find myself, I've been using this as kind of a test with myself lately. If I get really worked up over something, I bring this question to mind. Is this going to matter in five years from now? And most of the time, it's absurd. No, this isn't going to matter five weeks from now. What do you invest your time and your energy in? Is it going to matter? Is it going to matter 50 years from now? Is it going to matter 5 billion years from now? Are you living as if the resurrection from the dead is true? 
Do you live in light of eternity or are you just passing your days just trying to get by with a little slice of happiness? Running after those things which perish. Because if you say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the resurrection from the dead, then that's going to change how you live your life. Imagine it was somehow discovered, maybe through sonar or something, that there is a buried treasure beneath your house worth billions. Would you just sit on your couch every night and say, I believe that? There is a limitless amount of money beneath this house. I believe that as you're flipping through the channels. Or would that knowledge, that belief, lead you to action? Of course it would. You're talking to excavators, you're talking to construction people, you're talking to people who are experts in the makeup of the earth in Ventura County. I mean, you're thinking about it at night, you're thinking about it in the morning. It would consume your your thinking. you would spend yourself pursuing that treasure. And it has to be the same with the kingdom of God. It has to be. If what Jesus said is true, if there is an inheritance that awaits us that cannot spoil or fade or perish, and it is for us, and there is an eternal joy to be had, and our serving God here is somehow going to maximize our experience in that life, of course it would drive us to change. How could it not? But I'm afraid a lot of people have a placebo kind of faith. They believe in God. They believe Jesus rose from the dead. But there's no actual substance to that. It's a sugar pill that makes them feel better when they get scared. Or they find themselves in trouble and they need God to bail them out. But it's not really real. In my introduction, I spoke about the hopelessness of that scene by Caleb's grave. And it did feel hopeless until the pastor opened up his Bible and he started reading Scripture. And this is one text he read, John 11.25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Oh, it was a dark day. It was drizzly and rainy. People were sobbing. And it was just so hopeless. And he opens up the Word of God and all of a sudden there was light. And there was truth. And there was hope. And you look around and all of these tombs everywhere and you see crosses all over the place and those crosses represent something. And they represent the hope of resurrection. Resurrection. 
and this terrible, miserable, sad state of affairs called death isn't the end. And there is hope. And we have a promise from the most reliable source that ever was. The God-man Jesus Christ. Now we take communion together. And this represents a lot of things. Jesus, on His final night with His disciples, gives them these things. He points them to these physical things to teach them what's going to happen. He's going to be beaten, betrayed and beaten and executed. And His blood is going to be shed. His body is going to be broken. And it's a really dark and sad scene. But of course, it's all in light of what Jesus is going to do. He's going to defeat death. There's the resurrection. And so these symbols of body and blood are not some tragic ending. They're the hope of a new beginning. This is why He has the church come together and to do this very thing. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. Now get this last part. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. What does that mean? He's alive to the resurrection. Oh, Father, thank You that in the darkest hour, in that all of the darkness and brokenness and sorrow of death, there is hope and there is life because of Jesus. Oh, Lord, may we live in light of the resurrection. May we live as if these things are true. May it transform us and change us forevermore. Amen.